0: Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode... I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Yulia Goland, a social neuroscientist who studies interpersonal synchrony. In other words, she studies how people get in sync with one another. Human beings are inherently social creatures. We are constantly shaping and being shaped by our social environments. A lot of this communication happens verbally, but the majority of it happens below our conscious radar on levels that we may not be aware of. When we interact with someone else, sometimes we can have the feeling that we're clicking or that we're on the same wavelength, so to speak. What these metaphors help us describe is that feeling when we feel a sense of rapport and connectedness with the other person. We've all had these experiences, but what Yulia does is show that not only do we experience these moments of connectedness subjectively, but she also shows that objectively there are neurological and physiological markers that also become synchronized during such interactions. So to a certain extent, the saying that you and I are on the same wavelength is much more literal than we would have thought. It was really fun speaking with Yulia about the different ways in which this propensity to synchronize with others affects us, and we really got into the good, the bad, and the ugly of interpersonal synchrony. We spoke about the social nature of humans and how there is no individual without a community around him. The interplay between the individual and the collective is eternal, and the boundaries between self and the other are never quite clear. In a sense, we're immersed in a social network, and that network is a part of who we are and we define ourselves based on the social context we're in. This social nature means that we have evolved to be so sensitive and receptive to the social cues around us that we do this subconsciously and automatically. I personally love research that takes phenomena that might be otherwise disregarded, and grounds it in a secure scientific base of research. That's exactly what Yulia is doing. So stay tuned and enjoy today's episode. So today we're going to talk about your research on interpersonal synchrony, so we can finally understand what it means to be on the same wavelength. Now, before we dive in, I always like to start with a bit of an origin story. So can you tell us how you came to study neuroscience? And specifically interpersonal synchrony. And did you always know that this is the field that you wanted to research? Sure. First, thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh,
1: I am sure it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Looking forward. Uh, about my personal history, I'll really try to make this very very long story short mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's a long story. Uh, so. I first wanted to be a psychologist. So I started uh, at the psychology department in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, My major was in psychology, but I also majored in philosophy. And uh, I must say I enjoyed philosophy much more than psychology. And it became very fast obvious to me that clinical psychology is not for me. I just didn't feel the connection to all the Freudian models and the unconsciousness. Although today, this is actually what I do and study the unconsciousness, but in a very different form than uh, what we studied at the first year um, introduction to psychology. But I became fascinated with uh, the brain. And physiological processes and started to volunteer at a wonderful lab with Professor Shlomo Bentin, who became my supervisor afterwards. And um, I could really appreciate that the brain study and the physiological studies allow me kind of to peek behind the curtain. Because it fascinated me. And the question arrived from philosophy, actually. How does it work? How does the world really look like behind the wheel of uh, my eyes, my sensory system, my perceptual system? And the brain science, the physiology allowed an illusion, because it is an illusion, that we touch there on real stuff, right? The stuff that is behind what we perceive, what we consciously perceive. Uh, It is an illusion because, of course, even when we do brain science, we do it with our consciousness. So (laughs) it is still within the boundaries
0: of the perceived reality. So do you think that consciousness itself is an illusion or... How, how do you see, no. where, where does the illusion uh, yeah. come into the picture? For so you?
1: the illusion is to think or to feel or to experience or to hope that uh, when you study brain, you study the real stuff, the objective stuff. And when you study uh, behavior, for example, or self-reports, or when you talk to people, you study more subjective fluid phenomena uh, after it's been processed by our conscious sensors. Because I... Th- even when we study brain, we do we do it first. We do it with all kinds of methodologies that we invented, and right. we never just study the brain. We always do it hypothesis driven, and with the hypothesis comes all the back, all our biases and uh, the limits of uh, conscious experience.
0: So, so we're very much on the same page <laughs> in that case. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I think uh, neuroscience has so much to teach us, but at the end of the day. Um, I I have a hard time reducing all of consciousness to only the physical. I think, mm-hmm. it, I think it can shed a lot of light, but yeah. yeah, Um, but but we need to understand that it's um it's it's another methodology, and it does help us of course. look under Absolutely. the hood. Yeah, um, and I must say that I think that brain
1: science had a tremendous contribution to understanding the nature of our consciousness, especially today with all the new uh, brain models. It's just uh, mind-blowing how we understand the mind better uh, than before, at least in my view. No,
0: absolutely. I think it can show us all sorts of patterns and also confirm a lot of theories, Mm -hmm. right? Once you Mm -hmm. have also the physical uh, realm Mm -hmm. proving certain theories that we have, that are only conceptual. Uh, so I think these two, um, two worlds really speak with each other exactly. and it's a lot more nuanced. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I very much am for the integration of the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. back
1: Yeah. 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 Back to Hebrew university. The year is uh, 200, no, 2001 or something like that. I don't remember exactly. So I joined Professor Shlomo Bentin's lab. And what we did there is studying the physiology of face perception. So, mm-hmm. you know, people are really experts in perceiving faces of others and recognizing faces. We are much better to recognize a face than a chair, for example. Uh, right. So we try to really understand and dig into these unique mechanisms which allow us uh, such and expert face perception. And then... Again, at a philosophy lesson, <laughs> I met somebody whose name is Uri Hasson. He's a good friend. And today he's a professor of neuroscience in Princeton University. But he came from uh, Rafi Malach's lab at Weizmann Institute, at which they also studied face perception, but using fMRI, using brain recording. While at Sloma's lab, we did it using EEG, different methodology. Okay. And I said, let's organize a seminar together. And we did that like a group, a meeting of two groups. We combined forces and discussed all the findings from the two labs. It was fascinating. And I fell in love with brain science, fMRI. So I studied my PhD in a combination of Hebrew University and Weizmann Institute. And also Professor Rafi Malach was also my supervisor. And during my PhD... I abandoned the face questions totally <laughs> and somehow I was drifted to investigate uh, a very fascinating network which is uh, today called uh, a default mode network mm-hmm. and it's a network which allows uh, like self-integration and narrative understanding the large network of holding and creating meaning in the brain so it was known Then we didn't know what this uh, network does. We just identified it and uh, it was a story in itself. And doing this, we developed tools in which we started to define brain networks as brain regions which are synchronized with each other in their activity. So you can see what is a brain network. Brain network is like a bunch of regions in all kinds of anatomical locations. They are not directly connected Or not necessarily... Uh, but then when you look at the activity, the activity is synchronized, there. although it can be in different hemispheres, one in, and one in the front, one in the back. But when the regions become synchronized in the activity, you say, "Ah, oh, this is a brain network. And probably these regions are synchronized because they do the same thing. They have a similar function.
0: I'm envisioning like an orchestra and exactly. like different instruments playing yeah. at the same time and everything is, uh, everything is in tune. Absolutely. That's the right metaphor. Just no conductor.
1: so that was my phd studying a large-scale mysterious brain network which we didn't know its function what is it doing today we are much more progressed with understanding its function and nature but not yet then Uh, and then when i joined idc uh, the psychologist department what happened is that At IDC, the psychology department is very, very social. A Mm. lot of excellent, amazing social researchers, which is a field that I didn't know before. I mean, I had no expertise in it. I didn't know that I knew it exists, but I didn't know the kind of question that they asked or the models or the theories. And I started talking to people. And develop an interesting conversation in the kitchen, in the corridor. And also my uh, scientific uh, collaborator, Navalevide Binun, uh, she was very interested in developmental questions, how of interaction, how people interact, what is the optimal interaction. And out of this very rich contextual, intellectual uh, conversations, an idea arose of weight so before during my phd i studied synchrony between brain regions and we also developed really unique techniques to identify the synchrony and quantify the synchrony but what about two people can we say that two people can be synchronized with each other maybe spontaneously without any instruction and it was a mind-blowing idea. No evidence for it existed yet. Uh, it was a long time ago, at the beginning of my way at IDC. So I shared this idea with uh, Mario Mikolinser, who, who was our dean. And... Um, One of the people who really contributed a lot to this social, uh, to my understanding of social processes and social psychology. And he said, Yes, this is mimicry. We all know about it. And I'm like, Mimicry? I never even heard this uh, term. And then I discovered the psychologist discovered a long time ago that we mimic each other automatically. So when somebody smiles, I also smile. And then what first I started noticing how we indeed mimic each other, which I didn't notice before I knew this, uh, before I had this conversation with Mario. And then I thought, yet mimicry is not synchrony. And the question is what happens inside the body, what happens at the physiological level. And... That's the story of how I became a synchrony researcher because uh, then we did our first experiments with two people who co-viewed a movie together and we started to discover the conditions for synchrony and the function of synchrony, what is it good for and when it happens and when it doesn't happen and uh, building some kind of initial models of it. Uh, And um, the world kind of joined into it because now it's one of the most popular... Uh, and fastly developing fields in social neuroscience. Uh, it is beyond any doubt now these days the understanding that yes, this is one of the basic interpersonal processes. We do tend to synchronize with each other, and in the most simple way, it is synchrony is for, is communication, and mm-hmm. uh, we constantly communicate with the world, with each other, and synchrony is one of the ways to do it efficiently.
0: I think that um, the moment you find something happening on two levels of analysis, right, in the sense that we see mimicry happening in the behavioral mm-hmm. level, but once we see it also on the on the brain level, on the physiological mm-hmm. level it lends so much more weight to that theory and yeah and we can we can really we can really trust that what we're seeing is yeah is a a true phenomenon so I think I think this research is amazing and it's no wonder that social neuroscience has been taking off Mm, exactly Mm -hmm. so in terms of just the just to give a little bit of context on the behavioral level of what kind of things do we mimic what what actually syncs up between mm-hmm, two people? Mm-hmm. So I think pretty much everything.
1: And uh, a useful distinction would be to think about it as a output system and input system. So all the physiology, uh, the hormonal level, the cardiovascular level, the physiological level, the autonomic level, the brain level, it happens inside. And then we have a lot of output systems. It's like our motor activity and facial responses. Everything that goes outside towards the external world is an output behavior. And I think we have evidence that pretty much everything that we output to other people uh, can be picked up. And mimicked and become synchronized, uh, become a channel for synchrony between people. So body
0: language, posture, like hand gestures, accent, uh, yeah.
1: tempo, uh,
0: loudness of uh, right. speech, and tone of voice, temp, tone and the tempo, voice. and yeah, also emotions in a sense. Absolutely, yeah, right. No. And how would you how would you explain that in the sense that for, on the one hand we have facial expressions that mm-hmm. can sync up, but mm-hmm. how do emotions? Mm-hmm. Uh, become synced.
1: Yeah. So, first, they don't always become synced, right? Yeah. So, you can easily imagine a situation in which one person is, let's say, aggressive. So, he's been angry and another person is frightened. But even when you think about an angry and a frightened person, you think about high sympathetic tone. They're both physiologically mm-hmm. aroused. They have negative balance. Okay. So, you can pick up two organisms which bind together in very
0: activated negativity. So mm-hmm. at that level, they are synchronized. Um, right, it's manifesting in, in subtly different ways, but there is a synchronization in the in the sympathetic. There is some
1: level at which they are very much synced, yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So
0: mm-hmm. when you guys study interpersonal synchrony, what kind of physiological markers are you using? What are you looking at? Yeah.
1: So again, pretty much everything.
0: But (laughs) we started
1: with uh, autonomic activity, which is, for example, uh, heart rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's quite amazing you know heart rate became one of my favorite markers for synchrony because it, it shows it robustly shows the phenomena and heart rate is something very easily recognized i mean physiological signals are noisy especially if you record them from you know uh, fully behaving people who talk to each other—you have a lot of artifacts, uh, and some noise can come in. But with the heart rate, you have this very specific marker, and you know to identify your biological signal, which is super important with biological signals, not to confuse between the, ra- the ratio between signal to noise and right. So heart rate is a clean physiological signal, and then really heart rate, heart is not there for communication or emotions it is there to support our life right this is its main function i mean my heart beats uh, for a very good reason and when it stops beating that's it right it's not that i become unemotional i just become non-existent (laughs) and then to identify these markers of synchrony in the heartbeats of people uh, it was really remarkable, and uh, it's quite reliable. We saw it in many experiments across uh, different
0: populations, so heart rate and does mm-hmm. does only heart rate synchronize, or does the rhythm also synchronize if you if you catch my drift, like is it just the speed? Or is it? It is. It is the speed. It is the speed. Not exactly. the rhythm? It's the dynamics. Okay, okay. So
1: you can be like an 80 BPM person, I can be a 50 BPM person, but when your heart speeds up, my heart speeds up as well. Uh, It can be at different basal levels, but the dynamics is shared. But the dynamics, okay. We move together in this uh, space of cardiovascular activity. Uh, We also recorded galvanic skin response, which is people know it from uh, the how do you say, light detection? Yeah, detection? Yeah. Polygraph, uh, polygraph. Exactly, yeah. exactly. From the polygraph. And this is a pure sympathetic marker. Sympathetic means like uh, activation, arousal, preparedness for action. Uh, we see it also in respiration. Uh, and then in the last years, we started recording facial expressions, but not expressions per se, but the activity itself of facial muscles.
0: Right, like you guys hook up certain things to the cheeks, electrodes. Yeah, yep. and then we
1: measure the tension in different muscles in the face. And this was mind-blowing. Because in contrast to physiological activity, which we said is not there mainly for communication, it's, it is certainly involved in communication and emotional transmissions, uh, but it's not its main function. But for facial expression, it was like you didn't need any statistics. You just could see it with your bare eyes when you looked at the signals that people become robustly synchronized in their facial expressions. And this
0: was without looking at each other. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Could you you give us uh, some examples of how you guys conducted these experiments? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the synchronization... Doesn't even happen in face to face interaction, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we started with uh, non direct interaction because,
1: so it was really fascinating actually to design these paradigms because, uh, on the one hand. You really want to preserve natural, spontaneous social behavior. On the other hand, you cannot allow all the variability between people. So let's say two strangers come into the lab and they do what? And we want to record synchrony. And, and what do they do? Okay, let them talk. But some people do Just click, you know, and they have really lovely conversation and even go to some interesting stuff and intimate stuff and exposure and another two people do not. And then they barely exchange words with each other and then you have this huge variability And then you don't know what is the meaning of the synchrony that you recorded or found uh, because on psychological level and even on the motor level, the amount of words they emitted, Mm -hmm. uh, there were such huge differences. So what we did is uh, we developed a co-viewing paradigm. We then discovered that actually it existed before and there were some studies with this uh, paradigm before, but without physiological aspects. Uh, And in this paradigm, people sit near each other and co-view a movie. And their task is to view the movie. Uh, They're specifically asked not to communicate with each other. And if they do, then we just don't treat the data because, uh, again, all this variability comes in. It was, by the way, really uh, fascinating
0: to see that people just couldn't refrain from talking. It was so hard for them. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure it's very awkward to come into a lab and there's another person and you're almost like compulsively you want to. (laughs)
1: Absolutely.
0: But it is. But it also
1: reveals this huge motivation to connect. Uh, it was fascinating to see that i mean two students came to fulfill their credits for a course they uh, obliged to do this experiment yeah so many of them treat it as something very super technical and just uh, let me finish with it and go on with my day you probably know it from your (laughs) students and then they sit near each other and within seconds they start communicating and then you need to remind them please uh, do not communicate this is an experiment which
0: goes on in silence and um, sometimes you succeed and sometimes you don't I think that just goes to show how social we are and how just the mere presence of another person mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. have such an impact you know and to tie that back into uh, corona days and uh, zoom absolutely right The the fact yeah. that the you don't have another human in the room. There's so much that you're missing. Yeah. That's that's under the radar. Right. Mm-hmm. All of this synchrony and this um a feeling of connectedness that doesn't even need to happen on the level of words. Yeah but you know it's interesting to
1: understand what the boundaries of this can't we be synchronized uh, virtually and uh, have you guys tried that we had we we do that this year but
0: i don't know the results yet so that, yeah yeah no that's that's uh that was super be be important super important to yeah. understand really what the boundaries are absolutely yeah what can we get from yeah. zoom and what
1: yeah, What are yeah, we yeah, missing? Yeah.
0: I, my feeling is that you can be
1: absolutely synchronized over really? Zoom. Yeah, because I could feel my accommodation uh, to this spiritual space. Uh, at first it was like, what, how am I going to teach uh, over Zoom and the connection with the students and the feeling. I suddenly understood how much I pick up from the audience, from all these subtle cues, you know, attentive, non-attentive, and how I actively work with these cues. But then we all accommodated and developed different forms of synchrony and communication.
0: and uh, right no, I think there was definitely an adaptation. Mm-hmm. I just um I, I was very surprised when we when we uh, went back to sort of normal life now and started meeting more face to face. I was surprised by how much the uh, the interaction, how much was added to the interactions, yeah. Right, because the, still there's something in the in the physical space that absolutely. I felt was very, absolutely right. Yeah. But but we we obviously have been able to synchronize over Zoom mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, to make mm-hmm. the best of it. Yeah. Um, okay. Back to the yeah. experiment. Yes.
1: So two people sitting near each other and watching a movie, not communicating, and then what we found, and the movies were emotional movies because we wanted to kind of catalyzer for emotional behaviors to come out. And what we found is that people who watched the movie together were more synchronized than people who watched the same movie but not together. Okay. in different Diets.
0: Okay, so it's not just the movie exactly. that was created. Exactly. First, yeah. the
1: movie obviously synchronized between people. And this is also some something important to understand because we also synchronize with the world. Right. So if we are embedded in the same emotional environment, we are necessarily synchronized at a certain level. If we are exposed to the same uh, narrative, we are, this narrative synchronizes between our brains and our bodies. But above and beyond the synchrony, there was something unique, like a unique marker for each and every couple, uh, which, and the couple members, couple, I mean, in terms of experiment, these were strangers to each other. um, They were different from other couples. They were more synchronized with each other Mm -hmm. than with all the other participants who viewed
0: exactly the same movie, but not uh, with them amazing and you guys also did certain experiments with with actual couples right with people who were in mm-hmm. intimate relationships what did you find in these kinds of experiments um different stuff and it's also something important to understand
1: about synchrony synchrony is not good or bad it's synchrony and what synchrony creates is kind of a binding for example, in emotional context, and this is the context of which I'm most knowledgeable, because that's the that's what we study. Uh, so it binds people into a similar emotional experience. Okay. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's really a bad thing.
0: Right. So two people can also bring each other down in a sense, and yeah, they can sink around it, a negativity. I think. I think about a conflict. Uh, if you
1: sink. With your partner, for example, in the context of a conflict, it's a very bad road because then nobody regulates, and uh, you will just go up, 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 and uh, right. Okay. Nobody will break this vicious
0: circle. Uh, right, right. It uh, spirals, mm-hmm. <laughs> spirals mm-hmm. out of control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so there was there was one thing that I wanted to ask about what you guys have found in terms of individual differences of how well people synchronize. Mm-hmm. And you guys have used all sorts of markers and to, to investigate this. But what have you found in terms of, of these individual differences and how certain people are mm-hmm. able to synchronize really well with yeah. their environment and other people not so much? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so
1: I think first individual differences exist. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and These individual differences can exist at the level of individual, that's the kind of person I am, and they can also exist uh, uh, in terms of context, like that what happens to me today, or with this person, or with that movie, uh over this situation. So I can be very different in different situations and in different contexts. And this is something very important to understand about our brain, is that it is highly contextual. So when even when we discover biological principles, it doesn't mean determinism. It doesn't mean that the behavior is fixed. It will change according to the context. Um, and context is first and for all about Cues You recognize context by cues. And this recognition of cues is super important to synchrony. So, for example, these two people who sat near each other and co-viewed a movie, and were still synchronized with each other, although they didn't communicate or didn't turn to each other. What happened? How did they become synchronized? And we think that they became synchronized because they picked up our perceptual system picks up subtle cues from another person and does it constantly, even when we are not aware of this uh, process of these cues. It picks up these cues and integrates it into its own uh, experience or response. And that's how we become synchronized. And we actually, we even tested this model because we did another experiment in which, again, two people were sitting and co-viewing a movie, but in one condition, we put uh, like a non-transparent divider between them, so we stopped the transmission of the cues. Uh, so they were still together, they were still co-viewing a movie, but there was a, like a block between them. Uh, they couldn't communicate also visually, uh, yeah? And then it significantly reduced the synchrony.
0: So Okay, so there is something in the perceptual system that's picking up these exactly. subtle cues, and, and we're unconscious of it happening, but we but but this input that we're getting from exactly, the other person, exactly, and think how reasonable it
1: is. I mean, you are in a certain space in proximity to another person, you want to know. Whether to trust this person or not to trust this person, how exactly to build your behavior with this person. This is very important, essential, even. Uh, and that's why when we are in an elevator with somebody, it's kind of an awkward situation, <laughs> right? You are close with somebody and you, I mean, you cannot ignore his or her presence uh, because your system really strives to identify what's going on with this person. And these mechanisms also support synchrony because you pick up all these subtle. Cues and then you kind of flow with the cues and uh, accommodate to each other, and develop a certain common vibe or common tempo, or com- which builds up synchrony. Um,
0: unless there are good reasons to not to do it. Okay, and in what situation would there be good good reasons not to synchronize? For example, if you're in a competitive context. Okay. Uh, okay. Or if it's
1: somebody you know if there is power involved uh, somebody is more powerful than the other uh, or competition of resources for sure this is like the first breaker of synchrony uh, somebody
0: who's been unfair to you before uh, interesting okay so so you wouldn't um you wouldn't want to become synchronized although i'm I'm picturing, like, in a competitive situation, maybe there would be a synchrony in the autonomic level, right, of arousal. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, it depends on the context, actually. Very much. Again, yeah, it depends on which situation. Mm -hmm. What what situation we're looking at, of course. There was um, a particular study between mothers and daughters that you guys found, right, and that you... Um saw that there was different um cardiac vagal mm-hmm. regulation mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right, and mm-hmm. how that affected the the positive emotions that were transmitted between the mother and the daughter right, right. The codependency of the autonomic
1: system and the regulatory effort, yeah. Yeah, now I understand what RSA study you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Because there is a lot of RSA studies. I see, there. I see. So just to uh, be clear about the terms, RSA is a respiratory sinus arrhythmia and it's actually a fascinating physiological phenomena. Uh, and what it means is the it's also called heart rate variability. So our heart rate is not constant. It only constants when... We reached the finish line. (laughs) So it changes a little bit from bit to bit. The the heart rate changes. And the more it changes, the more it is variable, the better for you. So you have better regulatory powers. um, it, It is uniquely and specially connected to... Uh, regulatory abilities uh, to also to your social capacities uh, to your ability to um, meet stress in a more positive way and more resilient way so to have a variable heart rate is a super good thing for you and uh, what research found is that when we engage in positive social situation um, our heart rate variability increases. So the more it increases, the more variable our heart rate becomes. And variable means flexible, I think. That's right, the idea. Right. Able uh, to change. Exactly. Uh, so the more variable our heart rate becomes in social context, the more the interaction is positive and fluent and uh, nice and, yeah, and harmonious. Uh, it's linked with positive social capacities, this heart rate variability. So what we found in this research is that when mothers and daughters did a collaborative task together, they linked in the heart rate variability. So mothers and daughters were synchronized in the degree of their heart rate variability. And the higher levels of heart rate variability and this linkage were actually linked with more positive uh, emotional experience and regulatory experience from this interaction. Amazing. But what we didn't know in the study... Uh, the, the one thing that I'm always, when you're doing a research, uh, after you finish it and you look at the results, you kind of say, oh my God, how could I not measure this? So we always miss something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always a crucial part to your story, which you didn't think about recording. And it's actually a torture to to develop an experimental design because you need to give up so many parts because you can't do very long experiments. Right. You need to limit yourself to a very final set of variables. And then you give up a lot of um, pieces of a puzzle. And you know for sure that you will be, for one of them, you will be very, very sorry in the end. So, this time, what we couldn't identify is whether actually these mothers and daughters were similar to each other in their RSA, not only during this particular interaction, which went, for example, good for this particular couple, but they actually arrived similar because. Certain mothers uh, promote certain physiological qualities in their children. Uh, so we couldn't we couldn't understand if it's a trait,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, or if it's a state. If this particular mother and daughter had a very successful and positive interaction, or if this particular Mother and daughter usually have positive uh, and successful interaction because that's the way this mother communicates with her daughter. And uh, uh, But, you know.
0: Yeah, no, for, for the next uh, experiment. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of um, shift into a bit of a different gear. You teach a course. Called the dark side of interpersonal synchrony, mm-hmm. and I wanted us to get into that because, you know, as we've been talking, I mean, we we mentioned it a little bit with uh, two people who are synchronizing over negativity or yeah. over conflict. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to to hear from you. What do you think are the dark sides of interpersonal synchrony? What yeah. what can manifest mm-hmm. that
1: that mm-hmm. is negative mm-hmm. here? So imagine an army march. Or imagine a certain demonstration, political demonstration, or imagine um, um, a mob. Exactly, yeah. And these are people who act the same, who look the same, with the army march, it's in particularly pronounced, right? They act the same, they move the same, they are uh, dressed the same. Uh, it's all... Happening according to a certain rhythm because it's a kind of a mu. There is always a kind of a music behind. Uh, these are highly synchronized individuals who are not individuals anymore. They become a group, uh, and that's what synchrony is for. Right, and, and
0: groups are able to do a lot more damage than an individual would do to you.
1: So groups, first and for all, what's important about group is that they care about the group more than they care about individuals, mm-hmm. the, the members of a group. That becomes more important. And I think this is the function also of group synchrony, right? For individuals to be able to leave their own ego and uh, their own self behind and to merge into an
0: ego And the self of this group, and that there is something that's really, uh, really addictive about that, right? That's why we go to a concert, right? We want to forget ourselves. We we want to be connected with everyone, or like a soccer game. But you know, in in a soccer game, you see a lot of conflict as well because of this Mm -hmm, synchronization.
1: mm -hmm. Of the group members, right? right? And then you have this uh, context of competing with another group, which is a classic, right? Uh, I mean, soccer game is a classic of intergroup conflict. uh, Absolutely. uh, With these uniforms and uh, things to chant and chanting, uh, And yes, you are absolutely right that we love it. And uh, the experience of being synchronized with somebody immediately gives us this sense of connection. And uh, it's a very positive
0: sense. I mean, the experience itself is pleasurable. Right. Um, I think, you know, as you were speaking, something came to mind in the sense of groupthink, mm -hmm. right? That we when we are able to leave our own individual uh, ego or our own uh, capacity for sense making and mm-hmm. we kind of outsource our sense making to uh to to the group to the group yeah. Wh- whatever whatever everyone else is agreeing with right this mm-hmm. uh, conformity mm-hmm. and that um might serve us in certain situations but it might also lead to a society that isn't really doesn't have individuals who are thinking for themselves. So <laughs> <laughs> a Deep, deep topic here. <laughs>
1: the thing is that you're absolutely right. And we could now flow with this uh, picture of the world. But the truth is that if you ask me, mm-hmm. then individuals never think for themselves uh, to begin with. Okay, I mean, why? Why is that? Try to give me one opinion that you have about this world, which is yours. I you didn't
0: pick it up from a uh, no of other course we're products we're products of the way we grow up and we're products of the information that we take in right mm-hmm. the books that we read mm-hmm. the podcasts that we listen mm-hmm. to whatever the facebook
1: uh, the facebook accounts mm-hmm. that we
0: we scroll mm-hmm. through the news the tv the, the the culture the but but we are i think um our own unique Amalgam of all of these things together, mm-hmm. plus, um, and there's that meeting place of all of these external influences with our uh, temperament and with our dispositions yeah. that we're born with. So, so Absolutely. there is, um there is a social part to the self. I completely mm-hmm. agree mm-hmm. that the self is we don't live on an island, mm-hmm. and you can't mm-hmm. look at the individual in a mm-hmm. vacuum. There is the individual and the collective, and they're constantly yeah. in dialogue. Yeah. Um, And I think on each one of those spectrums, you know, you have the positive and the negative. You have the positive side of individuality and the negative side Mm -hmm. and also of the collective. There's a lot of good things that come from community and from tribe, but there's also the dark side here. Yeah. So the change, at
1: least that I've Undercorn in my development of mm-hmm. uh, how I see the world and society and the individuals uh, within the societies is that beyond the good things that come from the collective, it's really important to understand how the collective is essential. Mm -hmm. it's not like good to have (laughs) it's nothing it's something you can't live without it's like an oxygen it's not like a nice car
0: (laughs) absolutely and i think that um you know on an evolutionary level we are so social exactly because the collective for humans is not optional it's not an option right we've evolved uh we've evolved not as humans but as humanity And as groups,
1: and it's not only us, it's actually, you can say it about all the mammals. Uh, And this is the function of our brain. Uh, The function of our brain is not to survive. The function of our brain is to communicate with others, because this is how we survive. Uh, And that's why all these uh, remarkable mechanisms that we talked about, uh, mechanisms which push us into synchrony with others, they're... Uh, hardcore biological mechanisms and built, w- in. built in when we come with them to this world from day actually from day minus uh, <laughs> <laughs> when
0: we are in not even born um, no absolutely so so from that you know um, that premise of the collective is 100 mm-hmm. percent essential we still see these negative manifestations of of interpersonal synchrony right we see these intergroup conflicts and I'm not sure they're negative uh, but, but you teach a whole course on the dark side that's of why it. I call I, yeah. they are negative <laughs> yeah. in okay so in not... the
1: eyes of Western person ah, okay, okay? Okay, okay because we are raised with a certain philosophy that we are independent. That we have our own ideas, that conformity is a bad thing. Okay, this I think everybody, you wouldn't um, tell somebody, wow, you're such a conformist, right? (laughs) That would mean, (laughs) of course. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the most reasonable. Conform is our nature. That's how we live. Of course we are conformist. Yes, we live with others and we develop together a common reality and we conform to this reality. It's not a bad thing. Uh, Bad thing can happen from it. And again, bad in terms of pain of other people, right? But uh, even when you look at intergroup conflicts, that's very natural. It's like when different groups fight for resources, a lot of bad things happen, but um, in the right, context... But, but it's not that the group essentially is negative, of course. Yeah, and the conflict and intergroup group conflicts are like a part of being a group. If you are a member of a group, if you belong to a group... Then it certainly strengthens the group boundaries and the idea of this is my group, this is not my group. Right. And, the um, moment
0: you have an in group, the moment you have a sense of belonging to a certain tribe, you automatically, automatically. create an out group. Exactly. exactly. Right. Exactly. And and there's an us and them dynamic. Yeah. And I wanted to to hit upon this. Um, this topic of oxytocin, right, mm-hmm. being a hormone that helps bind people together. We always yeah. think of it as love hormone, exactly. The what uh, yeah. bonds a mother to her child, or you know, two people who are yeah. in love. Yeah. It's it's the love hormone, but we also see it um, playing a significant part in, for instance, coordinated intergroup conflict. Right, like this sense of camaraderie
1: that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: that soldiers will feel with each other, or the sense of camaraderie that mm-hmm. uh, soccer mm-hmm. <laughs> soccer fans feel for mm-hmm. their uh, group mm-hmm. members against another, and this I guess I guess that would be the dark side here. That whenever you have an attachment, whenever you have a bond
1: to mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. person,
0: there's all the rest of the people that you would be willing to protect them from. Right? I, I always imagine like a mother lioness. Right? right, like oxytocin is binding her right. to her cub, but anyone mm-hmm. comes near and she's willing mm-hmm. to rip them to shreds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, oxytocin being a love hormone is like totally fake news. And uh, <laughs> science tends to produce many fake news recently. It's a very bad thing. I, I mean, I hope that complexity will find its way back to the media and to the science media in particularly. Uh, So oxytocin is not a love hormone uh, and it's not a connection hormone. Actually, the best model which exists today is that what oxytocin does is that it increases our sensitivity to social cues. Okay. So you remember that we talked about the importance of social cues when we talked about synchrony is, is, and that actually synchrony is building upon noticing all these emotional social cues which arrive from another person or from the context, uh, for example this person being an in-group or an out-group uh, mm-hmm. a competitor or collaborator all this is built upon all kind of social cues, verbal and non-verbal and oxytocin makes you more sensitive to these social cues, so if you imagine an intergroup situation or context, oxytocin will make you more vigilant, for example, and more, you know, tensed when you will detect. Uh, that this other person is not from your group. It will uh, cause you to imagine all kinds of negative scripts and uh, maybe be avoidant or be more aggressive uh, because this belonging to different group will suddenly be more important, more salient Mm -hmm. for your perceptual systems. Uh, You will not
0: be able to discard it. Right, I think... um you know, it goes back to this idea of a sense of belonging is so important to us as humans mm-hmm. because we're so social and because we've evolved in groups. And I think understanding that that's the underlying motivation for a lot of things can can help us untangle the intergroup conflicts that we see today because we, we do live in a slightly more civilized world and yeah. we hope to make some sort of progress. And I think a lot of times instead of demonizing Mm -hmm. um, certain behaviors and Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot more useful to understand the biological substrates that drive us right the the instincts for instance um, uh, Jane Goodall one of the things she observed is that in chimpanzees every day um, a pack of the males and sometimes a female would join in they would do these boundary patrols. Uh-huh. around their territory. Uh-huh. And if they saw a chimpanzee that wasn't from their tribe, they would rip him to shreds. Wow. Right. So, and and those are our ancestors in, right. <laughs> in a certain regard. Right. So we've evolved a yeah. long ways from there. You know, we can live in cities like New York City where people are mm-hmm. from all mm-hmm. over the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. so much difference, yeah. um, so much diversity. But understanding... The biological instincts that kind of pull us back mm-hmm. I think can mm-hmm. help us the more we understand, the more we can um, move forward so this is I think this is a very
1: important and beautiful vision of the picture that uh, intergroup aggressiveness is rooted in uh, group connectedness and below in the sense of belonging and I would add that this can actually help us to devise. Uh, philosophy, yeah, and approach mm-hmm. to these uh, conflictual situations, which is based on understanding these principles. So, for example, instead of uh, leaving behind our identities, social identities, which which we just cannot do, uh, especially not in Israel. I mean, Israel <laughs> is just you know the heart of everything. Uh, uh, we can create uh, novel identities which can encapsulate it, all kind of. Um, different identities and be more complex than what we are used to, but it is an identity, yes? Right, and, and they
0: still provide that, that belonging. Exactly,
1: exactly, because this is a need which needs to be satisfied.
0: Right, and if it's not satisfied, it will be satisfied in a, a
1: in less a, pure way. Exactly,
0: exactly. Absolutely. Okay. okay, so circling back a bit, I wanted to ask, of your research, what would you most want people to take away mm-hmm. from what you found mm-hmm. around interpersonal synchrony?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think that it's really important to understand this very basic tendency of us to connect and to synchronize with others. And synchrony means connection automatically. Um And for me, it was very important to recognize it, even in myself. And uh, I started to see world differently when I uh, saw the results of our experiments, because it's one thing to to think about it theoretically, you know, philosophically, or to talk about it at a dinner conversation. And it's another thing to see two strangers come into a lab, sit near each other, and synchronize in their facial muscles immediately, you know, with us mm-hmm. and in a very robust uh, way. So it's a powerful drive and it's important to acknowledge it, um, to examine if this drive is satisfied in your life and uh, if we are giving enough conscious resources to the social parts of our life to these parts which need to feel connected and secured by this connection and uh, loving and love and uh, if we are taking care of other people because this taking care is a powerful physiological mechanism which contributes enormously to our well-being it's important to take care we mammals need to take care of others, this is part of our definition as a mammal and um, Seeing human beings as uh, social animals, I think this is maybe the, the, the message, right? That the strong message that comes from uh, social neuroscience now, it's been known to social psychologists for ages, yeah, but they, they've been at war it were for decades uh, is it self or is it other yeah okay. who, who who came the f- who came first and today the answer is very clear the the we came first before the i uh, the i developed from the we and uh, i think it's super uh, it has a great potential to acknowledge this uh, and to understand how this we force plays out in your own life
0: Absolutely. I think uh individualism today in uh western culture, you know, it it brought about a lot of positive things, but also I think we do forget the social element. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. do
0: forget uh how how important the tribe is for us and how important this sense of we and community yeah. is and um and I think remembering that gives a real balance to your mm-hmm. life. Yeah, yeah. Mhm. So, for my last question, the podcast is called "The Bigger Picture," uh-huh. and what that means is basically zooming out and taking a wider view of the world, of your life, of your work, and finding the the deeper meaning in mm-hmm. things, and seeing what what your your hopes are for your work and what kind of impact you want it to have. Uh, how how you envision your life and what the bigger picture of your life and your work is. Mm-hmm. So, psh, big big question. Big question. Surprise question.
1: Even beyond all the big stuff that I already said. <laughs> <laughs> so, in some interesting and nonlinear way, mm-hmm. um, thinking about uh, the deeper meaning. Um, of my life and the work that I do and what I would like to contribute also to others and the world, I'm coming back to the self mm-hmm. and because I think that uh, we really live in a very exciting times uh, when we have significant progress in understanding how our brain and our consciousness builds reality. And I think that when we... It's very important for people who are not brain students or psychology students, but just people who strive to understand themselves. It's very important, I think, today to educate yourself with all these new models that come from neuroscience because it has substantial keys to understanding these mysteries, how this reality is created uh, in according to your past, in according to the meaning that you build, in according to your expectations, and how uh, the conditioning plays in all this, and how the reality is really very relative and subjective and can be changed, you know, very easily, uh, but needs very hard, work uh, every day uh, for substantial changes but still the potential is there Uh, and I think that if people understand how that the reality is constructed and not given to us we do not respond to reality but we construct it uh, then all these social issues and uh, the questions that the hard questions that you raise, the interpersonal conflict, uh, and also the personal suffering, uh,
0: can be really contributed by this knowledge. Amazing, amazing! I think I think that touches upon a really important point of the of how reality is constructed, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a really important takeaway. And understanding, uh, you know, what, what part we can play in that and I think that gives us a lot of, a lot more control over our life in a sense, right? And when mm-hmm. we know that we can construct our own reality, that gives us a sense of freedom almost and an ability Absolutely. to change things. choice. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Wonderful. Yuria, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. I enjoyed it very much as well. Thank you, Ronnie. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Ronnie Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. And thank you for listening. Until next time.